Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Tonight, um, I'd like to introduce Erin um, Amerson. Erin um, trained at the University of Minnesota and indeed became a fellow in HIV dermatology with us um, at San Francisco General a few years ago and joined the faculty. Um, so Erin's interests very much align with my own, and that is underserved populations. But in particular, Erin has been uh, a leading light in working in sub-Saharan Africa, in particular for a type of skin cancer that we're not going to talk about tonight, but I will mention, Kaposi's sarcoma. And Kaposi's sarcoma is the skin cancer that you see in people with HIV, and particularly when they have advanced disease and AIDS. And this is a huge problem in Africa, and um, Erin has been working out strategies as to improve people's lives and save lives in Africa. However, we're not talking uh, about Kaposi's sarcoma tonight. We're talking about the uh, more commonly seen skin cancers in the United States. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Erin. Thanks very much for coming. Thanks, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, So I just wanted to poll the audience. How many people in the audience know somebody that can be yourself or anyone, a friend, a family member who has had skin cancer? So just about everybody. And those of you who haven't raised your hands, I bet you just don't know about it. So... um, So, uh, and I do, as Kieran mentioned, I work at San Francisco General. I also spend half my week over at the VA Medical Center where we serve a a large population of uh, often Caucasian, older uh, patients who may have spent time in the South Pacific and had a lot of sun damage and they have a lot of skin cancers. So this is a huge part of my everyday practice and I'm really happy to have a chance to teach you about it tonight. So I don't have any conflicts of interest, unfortunately. So um, tonight we're going to talk about both melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancer, and I really wanted to walk you through not only what causes these diseases, but sort of um, how we as dermatologists go about identifying them, um, how we diagnose them, and then how we treat them. And in addition, if any of you follow healthcare news, uh, there have been uh, a lot of really exciting advances in the treatment of one particular kind of skin cancer called melanoma recently. We'll talk about that. And then other hot topics and controversies in the news regarding sunscreen and sun protection. So, uh, as I was saying, skin cancer is incredibly common. In fact, it's, uh, there are more diagnoses of skin cancer than any other cancer in the U.S. In fact, it exceeds the amount of all other cancers combined. It's incredibly common. You don't hear about it as often because the majority of these skin cancers are not typically life-threatening. The majority are not melanoma skin cancer, but uh, fall into two other categories. Uh, the first is basal cell skin cancer, and 80% of these skin cancers are basal cells. The next most common is called squamous cell skin cancer, and then about 4% are melanoma and then some other rare types of skin cancer. 
And even though uh, these uh, non-melanoma skin cancers are very rarely life-threatening, they have a lot of consequences uh, in terms of um, uh, their morbidity, in other words, uh, your quality of life. So in patients who have untreated skin cancers, they can be painful, they can bleed, and eventually they can become very disfiguring and uh, can even, uh, if they're let go a long time, invade underlying structures and cause problems with function. Um, And if they're let go a really long time, they can be life-threatening as well. So before we talk specifically about skin cancer, I just wanted to back up and and provide a broad definition of cancer. I think uh, that everybody thinks about cancer as always being this really uh, life-threatening problem. And again, a lot of skin cancers are not. When we talk about cancer, what we're talking about is a broad group of diseases that all have uncontrolled cell growth. So we have cells that are growing out of control, and that's the definition of cancer in general. And I also wanted to give you a quick little tour of skin anatomy so that you can understand where these uh, particular cells are coming from. So um, this is a cross-section of skin, and up here this pink layer is what we call the epidermis. And most skin cancers uh, that we're talking about are going to arise in the epidermis. Can anybody think of any reason why that would be? Why, Why would most cancers come from the epidermis instead of the deeper structures? Sun, exactly. So this is the external layer, and it it absorbs most of the radiation from the sun in the form of ultraviolet light. So epidermis here, this is dermis, contains all kinds of other things, blood vessels, nerves, um, hairs, glands, uh, et cetera. And then down here is the subcutis, which is the, the, the fat or the deepest structure. And uh, this is a close-up of the epidermis. So um, when uh, there are several different types of cells that make up the epidermis, this layer of kind of uh, rectangular cells down here uh, is called the basal layer. So when we speak of basal cell carcinoma, these are the cells that are originating basal cell carcinoma. Um, And these basal cells, their function is basically to make all the other skin cells. So they divide and give birth to the other skin cells, which then go on to mature, and they eventually die, and they form a a, um, nice compact layer that helps to, um, to keep moisture in our skin and keep other things out. So this is the basal layer. Here, um, this is called the stratum corneum, and this makes up the bulk of our skin. And uh, squamous cell skin cancers and their precursor actinic keratosis um, are going to arise from these cells. And then this thing that kind of looks like an octopus, a little orange octopus down here, is a melanocyte. And uh, these are the cells that produce pigment in our skin, or melanin, as that pigment is called. And uh, the, the tentacles of the octopus are called dendrites, and there's about... There's about one melanocyte for about every 10 basal keratinocytes, and that melanocyte sends those tentacles out to the keratinocytes, and it passes these small structures containing melanin called melanosomes, and the keratinocytes then take up the melanosomes, and they sort of um, they, they layer them around their nucleus where the DNA is contained, and that is, uh, is the mechanism by which they're supposed to be protected from all this radiation from the sun. So how is skin cancer detected? So there are sort of three ways. The first would be a patient identifies something at home that they're, uh, that they're concerned about. The second would be that another physician or healthcare provider identifies something. Maybe they're listening to your lungs and they see something on your back and they refer to a dermatologist. And then the third would be a dermatologist themselves actually identifies something on your skin. 
And one question that I get really frequently from my patients is, who should be getting a, der- a skin exam by a dermatologist? And I think this is a really common question in the public. Um, and not everybody agrees on the answer to that, but there are definitely some patients who we know should certainly be getting a yearly skin exam by a dermatologist. And there just aren't enough of us to go around to give a yearly skin exam to absolutely everybody on the planet. So who should definitely get a skin exam by a dermatologist yearly? Definitely, if you have a history of skin cancer, either melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancer, you should be getting a yearly skin exam by a dermatologist. A family history of skin cancer, um, certainly anybody who has a family history of melanoma, particularly if you have a strong family history of melanoma, so multiple relatives, you definitely need a yearly exam by a dermatologist. Kind of plus minus if you have a family history of non-melanoma skin cancer, just because it's so common. Patients who have many moles, Uh, Sometimes you'll see the number 50, sometimes 100, but patients with lots and lots of moles uh, may need to see a dermatologist yearly, especially if some of those moles are atypical, and we'll talk a little bit about what an atypical mole is later. Patients who are immunosuppressed, so HIV infection, patients who have had an organ transplant and are receiving medications to prevent them from rejecting the organ have a very high incidence of skin cancer, so we see those patients on a very uh, frequent basis. There are a few rare genetic disorders that predispose to skin cancer, so those patients see us frequently. And then plus minus uh, patients who have a, a history of blistering sunburns or extensive sun exposure. Unfortunately, that includes most of us who have fair skin. So again, um, uh, that's kind of plus minus, and it's a difficult thing to quantify. So when, uh, when we suspect something, uh, when we're looking at somebody's skin, we kind of go through a few steps. So when I'm scanning, when I'm doing a skin check and scanning somebody's body, um, if anything catches my eye, my next step and, and increasingly most dermatologists' next step is going to be to use an instrument called the dermatoscope. And I'll show you a little bit uh, about what that is uh, a little bit later. And then if, we're, uh, if we've identified something that we think is, uh, might actually be a skin cancer, we usually do a procedure called a skin biopsy. And what are we looking for? Um, when it comes to pigmented lesions, we often teach our patients to use this A, B, C, D, E criteria. And this is really a, an imperfect criteria. Um, I myself probably have 20 moles that meet this criteria on my body, and lots of people do. Um, but it, it's easy to remember, and, um, and it's, it can be useful for some of our patients. So A stands for asymmetry. So a mole, if you folded it on itself in half, uh, it wouldn't match one side to the other. B would be a border that is notched or irregular. C is color, so more than one color within a mole. D, diameter, anything greater than than the diameter of a pencil eraser. And E stands for evolving or a mole that's changing. And usually we want that to be a rapid change, so something that you notice over the course of months. So I find a little more helpful than the ABCDE criteria is something that we call the ugly duckling criteria. So um, this patient, uh, this gentleman on the left, is a patient who has probably hundreds of moles, and many of them meet that ABCDE criteria. But you'll notice there's one mole on his left shoulder that's much larger and has much darker pigment than, than a lot of his other moles, and that is his melanoma. So I usually tell my patients, if you can find, if you're suspicious about a spot, if you can find a twin for it, or at least something that looks like it might be a brother or a sister or a cousin, um, it's probably okay. We're looking for the one that looks different. It has different color, shape, size, and pattern than the rest of your moles. 
So um, I was referring to this uh, this procedure that a lot of us are doing. Uh, increasingly, dermatologists are training in this method of, of identifying uh, concerning things on a skin exam, and it's called dermoscopy. Um, dermoscopy is also known as dermatoscopy or epiluminescence microscopy. Um, it's a little handheld device. Sometimes we uh, there are types that we attach to the wall, like the otoscope in the in the room, and we use it to uh, look at the skin, and it magnifies and and also takes away the reflection of the light so that we're better able to see what's underneath. This is another picture of a dermatoscope. So it kind of eliminates that surface reflection. So what can we see with the dermatoscope that we can't see with the naked eye? We can see pigment structures, so there are, there are normal and abnormal pigment structures that we're looking for. Uh, we can much better visualize, visualize blood vessels, and uh, there are certain types of blood vessels that are much more concerning, or patterns of blood vessels that are more concerning. And then we can also see keratin and gland structures, which, uh, which more often than not lead us to, uh, to think that things are benign. So here's an example of a mole on the left without dermoscopy and on the right. Um, you can see much better with that surface reflection gone. You can really see these nice globules of pigment, and they're pretty regularly distributed, so that's a benign mole. On the left is a picture of kind of a nonspecific pink bump on someone's skin. Um, on the right, however, you can see an example of the visualization of the blood vessels. So um, this is a type of blood vessel that's called an arborizing blood vessel that's pretty specific to basal cell carcinoma. So when we see those, we almost always do a biopsy. And then this is a picture of a melanoma with and without dermoscopy. Um, without going into too much detail, um, one thing that we look for uh, is this pre the presence of this structure here, which is called a blue-white veil, this kind of milky uh, quality to this black pigment, and that indicates that there's very deep pigment. This is probably a pretty bad melanoma. So when we decide to do a skin biopsy, there are actually three choices that we have. The first is uh, called a shave biopsy, the second is called a punch biopsy, and the third is an excisional biopsy. So with a shave biopsy, usually we use this when we suspect that the, the pathology is very, uh, it's towards the top of the skin, up, up in the epidermis at the surface. And we numb it up, and I showed this to my husband last night, and he said, really, you use a razor blade? Um, <laughs> uh, and there are more, there are fancier ways of doing this, but, uh, but many of us prefer just this flexible razor blade, and you basically are just scooping off the, a, a segment of the lesion, and we put that in a bottle, and we send it to the pathologist for diagnosis. Diagnosis. The second type of biopsy is called a punch biopsy. Um, again, we numb it up, and then we use this instrument that almost looks like a tiny little cookie cutter, and we take a little plug of skin. And this is used when we want to look at, uh, at deeper structures down in the dermis as well as the epidermis. Um, and then we put in a, just a little stitch so that it doesn't bleed. And then finally, uh, the third type of biopsy is called an excisional biopsy, and this is used when we need to look at the entire lesion. Um, really, the only time, or I shouldn't say the only, but the, much, uh, the most common situation where I'm using this technique is when I'm suspicious of a melanoma, and we use this because the pathologist really needs to see the entire lesion in order to make a diagnosis and also um, help assess the, the prognosis of that particular tumor. So um, with an excisional biopsy, we're going, we're taking out the entire lesion, we make a football-shaped incision, and we sew it up with some stitches. 
So before I talk to you about melanoma, we're going to talk a little bit about just regular old moles. So the, the fancy medical name for moles is, uh, for a mole is nevus, and that in Latin means mark. Um, when we say melanocytic nevus, that's the correct medical term to refer to a mole, and the plural is nevi. So if you hear me use that word, I'm talking about moles. So there are a couple different types of moles. Congenital moles um, are usually uh, the larger, darker moles, and often patients are either born with them or they acquire them very early in childhood. And then acquired moles come on later in life, and that's the most common type of mole. It's normal to continue to get new moles up until about your late 30s or early 40s. And it's much more, moles are much more common in areas that see the sun. So you remember I used that word atypical or dysplastic mole. What is that? Um, so often atypical or dysplastic moles are larger. They often have different colors. They're often asymmetric. They often meet many of those A, B, C, D criteria. Most of these are going to develop after puberty, and they have some character, characteristic features when we biopsy them. So this is an example of a patient who has atypical moles. So they're pretty large. They kind of have a pink center and a more tan to medium brown periphery. They're sort of like a fried egg, and, and, um, and that's a very common pattern for atypical moles. So there's also this thing called the dysplastic nevus syndrome. It's also known as the familial atypical mole and melanoma syndrome, or FAM syndrome. Um, this criteria is pretty loose, and I wouldn't say that everybody who meets these criteria necessarily has this syndrome. Truthfully, to, to diagnose the syndrome, you'd need to do a genetic test. We don't usually do that, um, mostly in this day and age, for insurance purposes, because you don't want to diagnose somebody with something that means they're going to get cancer in the future. Um, it's not good for their insurance, um, which is sad but true. Um, in any event, the, the criteria are having greater than or equal to one blood relative who's had melanoma. Uh, the second is having more than 50 moles, um, and some of these need to be atypical moles. And the, you have to have a proven atypical mole on biopsy. So this is an example of a patient who, when they walk into a dermatologist's office, just makes our heart sink because... It's very, very difficult to know what to do with somebody like this. Um, you know, these people have hundreds to thousands of moles. They all look funny. Um, it's really, really tough to figure out which are the ones that you need to be concerned about. Obviously, we can't do a skin transplant and take off all of this person's moles. It would be impossible. So we have to come up with methods of identifying the bad ones. So um, the gene that I was talking about is known as P16, which is a, a type of gene that normally suppresses cell proliferation. So these patients are actually born with a, with a mutant form of this, and they're more likely to get both moles and melanoma. So um, some studies say that the risk of melanoma, if you have this gene, is up to 200-fold over the regular population. And uh, in some families, it also confers a risk of pancreatic cancer. So how do we manage this? Uh, it's pretty difficult. So these patients come in to see us frequently, I would say on average every six months, but some even every three months, especially if they've had melanoma or multiple melanomas. Um, so we use our dermatoscope, and uh, nowadays um, you can actually attach a camera to the dermatoscope and take pictures. Um, and we also do photography, so we take full body pictures and we can compare, uh, with, we can compare with their previous pictures. Um, at UCSF, we actually have a specific 
specific clinic for these patients. It's called the pigmented lesion clinic, and, and uh, they can take time to actually do these full-body photographs and compare. It's, it's very time-consuming and, um, and quite difficult to look at a full-body photograph and look at every single one of those moles. So when, we're, when we have any questions, we usually take a specific picture, and these days we take a picture with the dermatoscope as well. Um, okay, so melanoma is a tumor of the melanocyte. Uh, about half of melanomas are going to arise de novo from normal skin, and the other half come from pre-existing moles. So risk factors for melanoma, very similar to what I've been talking about. So, um, so fair skin, so patients who have light eyes, light hair, greater than 50 moles, dysplastic moles, and a family history of melanoma. And then interestingly, with melanoma, um, the, the risk is really greater if you've had a history of intense intermittent sun exposure. So if you're like me and you grew up in Wisconsin and were pale and then you went to Florida every year to visit the grandparents and got a blistering sunburn, you are somebody who's much more likely to uh, to be at risk for melanoma than somebody uh, who's in the sun all day, every day, which I find really interesting. Um, there are actually different types of melanoma that have varying degrees of aggressiveness. Um, and at UCSF, we've actually characterized um, that some of that those different types of melanoma actually have different patterns in the mutations that they acquire, um, and uh, which is really interesting. They they kind of all, even though they're all called melanoma, they behave in different ways. And uh, when I talk about aggressiveness with melanoma, I'm talking about their the the tumors. Uh, the tumor's ability or tendency to grow downwards into the skin. So when a melanoma gets dangerous is when it acquires the ability to grow down deep and eventually uh, get into uh, lymphatics uh, and into the lymph nodes or into blood vessels or, um, or wrap around nerves and they travel that way. And that's when it becomes dangerous. So the most common type of melanoma is called a superficial spreading melanoma. And this melanoma almost um, for a while will uh, will have what we call a horizontal or a radial growth phase where it's spreading like a puddle over the surface of the skin. Um, and eventually those melanomas will start to go down deep, but usually that comes later. Here's another picture of a superficial spreading melanoma. Now, there's another type called a lentigo maligna melanoma, which uh, which defies that uh, that rule that I was talking about where where melanomas tend to arise on intermittently sun exposed skin so lentigo maligna is much more likely to arise in skin that sees the sun every day so typically it's a disease of older patients um, and it tends to be on the head and neck in areas that see the sun frequently. Um, and these have that same kind of horizontal or radial growth phase um, but that that growth phase can go on for years with these patients. Another picture of a lentigo maligna. Now, a nodular melanoma is kind of a different animal. So these melanomas actually don't have that horizontal growth phase. They start going deep from the start. So often by the time these get into CS and get a biopsy, they're much more advanced than, than the typical superficial spreading or lentigo maligna melanomas. Acral lentiginous melanoma. So acral, uh, acral refers to the distant parts of the body, so the palms and the soles. This is actually what Bob Marley died of. It's much more common in patients uh, with skin of color, and it tends to occur, as I said, on the palms or the soles. And 
probably, uh, and this is tends to be uh, have a pretty poor prognosis, probably because patients aren't checking their feet. And if they do check their feet, they kind of think that maybe they just have a blood blister or something. People just this isn't on people's radar. Um, Bob Marley had what he thought was a soccer injury, a, a blood blister from a soccer injury, and he eventually died of metastatic melanoma. So melanoma can arise uh, in the nail, um, another form of acral lentiginous melanoma. And I also wanted to mention that although it's very, very rare, you also have melanocytes in other tissues in the body, including the eye and the GI tract and the genitals. So it's incredibly rare, but patients can develop a primary melanoma in those tissues as well, so places that actually never see the sun. So this is a type of melanoma that strikes fear into the heart of every dermatologist. It's called amelanotic melanoma, and um, this is another picture. Very, very subtle. Really doesn't look like much at all. Um, and again, these uh, are often missed and, and more aggressive. So um, fortunately, they're incredibly rare. They tend to happen in very skin patients, uh, but we worry about these a lot. So uh, the uh, epidemiology refers to the population study of melanoma, and um, the risk of melanoma has actually increased by 2,000-fold since 1930. So this skin cancer, or this type of cancer, is really um, on the rise, and there are a lot of theories as to why that is. So um, in 2010, the risk of having an invasive melanoma, in other words, a melanoma that has started to spread downwards into the skin, was 1 in 57. If we include melanoma in situ, which means the melanoma is confined to the epidermis. That risk is 1 in 33. And in Australia, it's 1 in 16. So um, in Australia, there are a lot of fair-skinned people, and there was a hole in the ozone layer for a while. So the, the risk of skin cancer there is just ridiculously high. So now that all of you in the audience are convinced that you have a melanoma, I'm going to tell you what you really do have. Um, it's much, much more often going to be one of these five diagnoses that are something brown on someone's body, and they come in to see us, and they're very worried that they have a melanoma, but we can give them good news that this is what they actually have. Um, so a plain old mole. Um, a lenigo, uh, seborrheic keratosis, dermatofibroma, or pigmented basal cell carcinoma, and also show you some pictures of these. So a solar lenigo uh, is otherwise known as a sunspot or a liver spot, and these are kind of uh, tan, flat areas that often have very irregular borders, but usually patients will have lots of them, and they're very nice and uniformly tan throughout. Seborrheic keratosis is another incredibly common lesion. Um, just about everybody gets them, and these have kind of a more of a warty or pasted-on quality. Often uh, they have different colors in them, so you can see the one on the bottom is two-toned here. Um, but they, when it has that kind of stuck-on look to it and kind of warty surface, that is really only found in seborrheic keratosis. And we dermatologists can identify these from across the room, but we still get a lot of referrals for seborrheic keratoses from even primary care doctors. So a dermatofibroma is another very common lesion, most common uh, on the legs of women. This is a funny scar reaction probably to an insect bite or a nick from shaving, and these are often pigmented kind of little firm papules. And then finally, basal cell carcinomas can also be very darkly pigmented. And often, without my dermatoscope, I can't tell the difference between a melanoma and a pigmented BCC. So 
how do we diagnose melanoma? As I said, usually these go for excisional biopsy. And then that piece of tissue that we remove, we send to the pathologist, and the pathologist not only tells us that it's melanoma, but they actually uh, also give us a lot of other important information. So you remember I said that the depth of the melanoma is very, very important. So that's called, on, when we look at it under the microscope, that's called the Breslow depth, and that's the pathologist measurement of how deep into the skin the melanoma has invaded. And that has very important implications in how we treat the melanoma and, um, and what the prognosis is. So in addition, the pathologist will tell us whether he can see cells dividing, that's a bad sign, whether he can see that the tumor is ulcerated, um, and whether he can see melanoma cells around the, the vessels and nerves. So this is kind of a complicated table. I won't spend too much time on it. Just um, to say that when, uh, just like a lot of other cancers, we, we will stage a melanoma. And that staging is based on three factors. So number one, tumor factors. So, what, so all of that stuff that I was saying the pathologist tells us, that gives us the tumor grade. The second is the, the N or the lymph node uh, stage. So if there's nothing in the lymph nodes, that's a good sign. And then there are various stages of lymph lymph node metastasis afterwards, and then M is referring to distant metastasis. And I'm going to see if I can get this to work here. So there's actually this really cool uh, online tool. We can get it to toggle back, um, where if you're diagnosed with a melanoma, you can actually go online and find out what your... Uh, what your um, likelihood of survival is. So let's say we've got a 55-year-old man who has a uh, melanoma that was on the leg, and the pathologist measured it to be two millimeters deep, and it was not ulcerated. So you can submit that, and it says you have a 99% likelihood of being alive in one year and a 92% uh, likelihood of being alive in 10 years, which is pretty good. Probably that's not all that much different than your peers. So, um, so this guy's in pretty good shape. Okay. So treatment. Treatment, as I was saying, is really based on the staging criteria. So um, after we do that original excisional biopsy and we have the depth, the depth is going to determine what we, what we do next. So if that tumor is less than three-quarters of a millimeter thick, then, uh, we, uh, then we basically determine a, a surgical margin. We go back, we cut out some normal skin around the melanoma, we sew it up, we send that piece to the pathologist just to make sure it's all out, and then we say, have a nice day, we'll see you in three months for your skin check. Um, and most of those patients who have those thin melanomas are going to do just fine. If it's more than three-quarters of a millimeter thick, we usually send them to the general surgeons, and they have their wide excision plus something called a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And what a sentinel lymph node biopsy involves is the surgeon, as he's doing the excision, actually injects a radio tracer dye into the area where the melanoma was, and that dye is taken up in the lymphatic channels and tracks to the lymph node basin that is draining that specific area. So we can't tell just because you you have a melanoma on your right arm doesn't necessarily mean that it's the lymph nodes in your armpit that drain that area. Um, so we use that dye to find the first lymph node that, uh, that that melanoma would be likely to be present in. 
The surgeon takes out that lymph node. Um, they look at it under the microscope, and they look, they're looking for metastatic melanoma in that lymph node. If it's positive, they usually take out all the lymph nodes in that area. If it's negative, they close you back up, tell you to go home, have a nice day, and we'll see you in three months for your skin check. If it's positive, then we're in trouble. So at that point, um, you are considered to have metastatic disease, and most of those patients are going to go on to need chemotherapy. And uh, in uh, up until very, very recently, that was associated with a very poor prognosis. Um, the major drug that's been used for melanoma for the last 20 years is a drug known as interferon alpha-2b. And that drug basically um, conferred a very small survival uh, increased revi- survival uh, in these patients. So they might live an additional four to five months at best. Um, and uh, and it's just a terrible drug to take. You kind of walk around feeling like you have the flu all the time. So, um, so that was always pretty bad news when you, when you needed to get interferon. However, there have been a couple of new FDA-approved agents for melanoma that are also showing uh, benefit for survival and are easier to take. And uh, in clinical trials, we have some really exciting progress uh, for the treatment of melanoma that I'm going to tell you a little more about. So um, before I talk about that, the sentinel node biopsy, uh, again, is the most important predictor of survival. Um, With the sentinel node biopsy, we all do it. There's been some controversy in the field regarding whether or not we should because in the past the survival was so dismal even with treatment. People argued why even know if you had metastatic disease we weren't going to be able to, we had such a low likelihood of saving your life anyway if you you did. Um, I think most of us, most of our patients wanted to know if they needed to go home and write their will or if they could um, could go home and expect to live a full life, and that's why we did it, and that's why we do still continue to do it. Um, but nowadays, we've got some exciting new things on the horizon. So um, there are two new FDA-approved drugs for the treatment of metastatic melanoma. The first one is uh, is not specific to melanoma. It's called ipilimumab or Yervoy, and that drug actually works to essentially augment your immune system's own tumor-killing ability. So that drug's being used in a lot of different uh, a lot of different cancers. And then another drug called vemurafenib, which is an antibody against something called BRAF. And BRAF is found mutated in a lot of melanomas. Um, So uh, this is something that uh, you basically need to have your tumor sent and analyzed for a BRAF mutation. It's similar to a lot of breast cancers where they analyze for the specific mutation. And you're a candidate for this drug if you have a BRAF mutation. So um, at UCSF and a lot of um, uh, kind of tertiary centers across the country, we are doing a lot of exciting new things in clinical trials for melanoma. Um, most, uh, most importantly, um, we are now able to take a tumor and identify the quote-unquote molecular fingerprint. So we can figure out exactly what's mutated in that tumor. And if we have drugs to block those mutations or help get around those mutations, we can. Um, One of the reasons melanoma is so difficult to treat is that, uh, unlike some other cancers, it's really slippery. So um, you block one pathway that's allowing the cell to grow out of control, and it finds a way around it. It finds a new pathway to use. So, um, So we have to actually go in and try to 
block a bunch of different pathways at once in order to really halt the cell growth. Uh, I think the best analogy is with HIV disease, where the, the virus you know, is able to really mutate and grow out of control. But now we know that the way to stop HIV from growing is to block it from several different, uh, block several different pathways of its growth. And really, the goal is uh, eventually going to be um, hopefully cure. But if we can't get cure, um, then similar to HIV, it can be a chronic disease where you have to be on drugs the rest of your life to prevent that tumor from kind of slipping out of control. But at least you uh, you actually have a chance of living a full and healthy life. Okay, I'm going to switch a little bit of gears here and talk about non-melanoma skin cancer. So there are actually a lot of skin cancers that are not melanoma. If you remember that slide I showed you in the beginning, there's all kinds of structures in the skin, and all of them have the ability to turn cancerous. But by and large, when we say non-melanoma skin cancer, we're referring to basal and squamous cell skin cancer. So the first uh, lesion I'm going to talk about is a very, very common lesion called an actinic keratosis, and this is a precursor lesion to squamous cell carcinoma. Actinic means from the sun, and keratosis means a thickening of the skin. So AKs are very, very, very common in fair skin patients. Many fair skin patients will have hundreds of these lesions, um, especially my patients at the VA come in just covered in AKs. Uh, in the United States, the prevalence is up to 26%, and again, in a place like Australia, it can be up to 60%, so so common. These are also due to sun-induced DNA damage, and they most often occur on sites that are chronically exposed to the sun. And usually we diagnose this clinically. There's no, there's no biopsy necessary. We, most dermatologists, all dermatologists can spot an AK from across the room. So the typical clinical picture of an AK is this kind of very rough, scaly spot with an ill-defined pink base. And once an AK uh, uh, evolves, it has three possibilities. It can regress, so it can go away and not come back. It can persist, and often that's probably the most common thing. So the, it never really goes away. It kind of will get rough, and then it'll start to smoothen out, and then it gets rough again. It kind of comes and goes. And then a small percentage of these will actually progress to squamous cell carcinoma at a rate of about half a percent per year. So in other words, if you have 200 actinic keratoses, you're probably going to be getting about one squamous cell carcinoma every year. So there are a lot of options for treatment of actinic keratosis. Uh, the most commonly used treatment is liquid nitrogen. Um, when patients come in and they are just covered in actinic keratosis, we call that field cancerization. So the entire field is, is, is probably affected by the same UV damage, and you just have almost confluent actinic keratoses. Uh, we have lots of options for that. And we'll talk about some of those. So cryotherapy is the name for liquid nitrogen treatment. This is the most commonly used method for destroying AKs. This uh, thing on the left is called a cryac, and we fill it with liquid nitrogen, and we can kind of control the amount of freezing that we get. So we freeze these. We're basically inducing frostbite in the skin. We're killing the epidermis, and then uh, it sloughs off, and new skin grows in from underneath. And this is useful for spot treating, you know, somebody who maybe has 15 or fewer actinic keratoses. 
So if you have more, we usually need to treat the whole field. And this is a picture of a gentleman who's undergone treatment with something called topical 5-fluorouracil, which is a chemotherapeutic agent. They use it for other cancers um, as an infusion, but um, we put it in a cream and have people put the cream on their face. Usually they do have to do this twice a day for three to four weeks. Uh, I always tell my patients that they're going to be scaring small children. Their face is going to look like hamburger during this time. But then you can see the after um, that this gentleman healed up and looked pretty nice. Um, with the field treatment, you're going to clear anywhere from 50 to 80% of the actinic keratosis in the field, and then usually we can get what's left with the liquid nitrogen. Another option is something called a miquamod, which actually works with the body's immune system to have the immune system come in and eliminate those precancerous cells. And it comes in these little packets. Um, the downside of the miquamod is it's a longer treatment course, so it also turns the skin pretty red and angry looking. And usually we have patients apply this three days a week for three to four months. So another option is something called PDT, or photodynamic therapy. Um, and this is a nice option for patients who can't have all that downtime of looking really red and, and angry. So um, with these patients, they come in and we use uh, we paint their, the affected areas with a chemical called uh, aminolevulonic acid. And that chemical gets taken up by cells that are dividing rapidly, and that's what the precancerous cells are doing. So it's prefer preferentially taken up by the actinic keratoses, we let you incubate for about an hour and a half, and then we sit you under a light source, and the chemical is actually activated by the light, and it destroys the precancerous cells. Okay, so that's how we treat AKs. Let's start talking about basal cell carcinoma. So this is the most common cancer in the United States by far. Um, only rarely does it become life-threatening, but it can be very locally destructive and cause problems with pain and bleeding, etc., and uh, just like there are different types of melanoma, there are several different types of basal cell carcinoma that have different treatment options and prognosis. So risk factors for basal cell, fair skin, family history, a prior personal history of basal cell, and um, these can occur in both areas that have had intermittent sun exposure and chronic sun exposure. So the major types of BCC, there are a lot of minor types, but the three we're going to talk about are nodular, superficial, and infiltrative basal cell. So the classic basal cell is called a nodular basal cell. And this usually shows up as a pink or flesh-colored bump that often has kind of a pearly or translucent quality to it. Um, if you look at the border of this, it sort of has a, you can see there's sort of a rolled or raised edge here. And it often will have visible overlying blood vessels. Uh, they bleed very easily when traumatized, and therefore often they'll have, a, they'll have scabs on them because they've been bleeding. So here are some more pictures of nodular basal cells, these kind of pearly bumps with these rolled borders and visible blood vessels over the surface. So why do we call it a nodular basal cell? We call it that because when we biopsy it, so let me give you some context here. This is a, a biopsy of a basal cell, and this is the epidermis running across up here. So this is the outside world. Here's the top of somebody's skin. Here's the dermis. And all this kind of purple stuff is the nodular basal cell carcinoma. So this sort of stays in a nice tight ball of tumor cells. It's not really spreading out anywhere. Superficial basal cell presents as a pink or scaly plaque, which is often mistaken for eczema or psoriasis. It's usually isolated and it doesn't itch. So if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, I have this one spot of psoriasis and it doesn't itch, often uh, my radar is going out for, uh, for a potential superficial basal cell. And these are more common on the trunk and extremities. 
So here are some pictures of superficial basal cells. Um, again, you can see there are kind of some little scabs within them because they've been uh, eroded and bleeding. And often patients will, have, will come in with multiple of these, as this gentleman has. So when we look at, at superficial basal cells under the microscope, now this is a 2D section, keep in mind. So, um, so we're really only seeing this in 2D. Um, but when we look in 2D, they're kind of, so they're staying very up close to the top as opposed to that nodular one, which was kind of a big ball kind of going down into the dermis. Um, so these stay at the top, and they kind of skip along the surface when we look at them in 2D. In reality, they probably are kind of sending out finger-like projections, and we're just catching that on a 2D section. So the third type of uh, basal cell is called the infiltrative or morpheiform basal cell, and these are the most aggressive types. Um, they tend to be the largest, um, and uh, they're very difficult to tell where the edges of the tumor are when we're looking at them clinically. Sometimes they can show up looking just like a scar, but the patient says, you know, I really haven't had an injury there, and this scar is just appearing on its own. Um, and you can kind of see that scar-like quality in these other pictures. But you can still make out here kind of that rolled, pearly border, and, the, and they tend to ulcerate just like the other types. So this is what an infiltrative BCC looks like under the microscope, and you can see why this type is more aggressive. Instead of staying up at the top and kind of staying nicely wadded into a ball of tumor cells, this one is sending out these spicules, and they tend to be to go very wide and very deep, and, um, and it's just very tough to tell where the end is. So generally, the prognosis for basal cell is excellent. These are slow-growing, chronic. I have patients who've come in and they say, I've had this spot on my face for 15 years, and it's just sitting there not doing anything bad to them. And really, that's the majority of basal cell skin cancers. However, the infiltrative and morpheiform types, while they're thankfully the most rare, are, uh, can also be much more aggressive. And, and you know, we do rarely, unfortunately, see patients where really like a quarter to a third of their face is involved. I've seen patients who their entire eye, upper and lower uh, lids and forehead all the way, um, and it, that's just, it's a, it's a nightmare for treatment. So um, eventually the more aggressive ones can, uh, can invade and destroy underlying bone and cartilage. They can also track along, along nerves and invade those underlying tissues. Um, thankfully, true metastatic disease is really, really, really rare. So treatment, again, depends on a lot of different things, mostly depends on the type of basal cell, also the location, and then the patient. So uh, for instance, somebody who's 95 and doesn't want to sit through a long surgical procedure might be more likely to want to do a cream or a quick burn and scrape procedure. Um, and conversely, if somebody is a 35-year-old supermodel, and I certainly do see patients who are that young, even younger, coming in with basal cells on their face, they want to have the best cosmetic outcome possible. So um, all of the those things factor into how we decide to treat these lesions. So for the less aggressive types, we have some options. We can actually use some of those same treatments we were talking about for actinic keratosis, so topical uh, chemotherapy and those immunomodulators or the photodynamic therapy are all approved for superficial basal cell. And really, the cure rate for these topical therapies is about 80%. Um, that's one in five recurring. Uh, again, we follow these patients pretty closely. If they recur, then we go to surgery. But um, sometimes it's nice to have the option to do a cream at home rather than going through a surgery. So if we do elect to do surgery, we have a few different types of surgery that we do. Um, the quickest and easiest is called an EDNC, or electrodesiccation and curatage. We can also do a simple excision, and then I'm going to tell you about uh, the most complex type of excision, which is called Mohs micrographic surgery. 
So ED and C uh, can be used for superficial or nodular basal cell. It only takes about five minutes to do. It's very quick and easy office procedure. Um, we tend to not do it on the face except in, on rare occasions just because the scar is kind of ugly. It kind of leaves a little depressed white scar, uh, which most people wouldn't want that in the middle of their cheek or nose. The cure rate is up to 95%. Of course, that depends on who's doing the procedure. Um, besides the ugly, far, other, ugly scar, the other disadvantage is the fact that when we do this, because we're just kind of scraping off the tumor, um, we're not sending anything to check to make sure that the whole tumor is out. So we don't know for sure whether we got the whole thing. So this is a picture of uh, somebody doing an electrodesiccation and curatage. This instrument over here is called a curette. It's kind of a sharp little round instrument. So we numb the, we numb the tumor up and we take this instrument and we basically do um, a scraping method and then we do, use the cautery and we do three passes of that. And it basically just removes the entire epidermis in that area. And, uh, and a lot of these tumors will just sort of shell out. So if we decide that EDNC and creams are not an option, the, the, uh, the next option is a simple excision. Um, with margins. So the cure rate for this, again, operator dependent, but it's also up to 95%. Um, usually we'll take that curette and we try to find the clinical edges of the, of the tumor, and then we take an extra four to five millimeters of skin around the outside, so normal appearing skin. So with this type of procedure, we're also taking out normal skin with the tumor. Then the wound is sutured closed, and we send the specimen to the lab. So in this case, that we have a pathologist looking at the piece that we removed to make sure that we got the whole tumor. So this is a picture of somebody. Sorry if this is a little uh, gross for people. So here's a picture of the, of the basal cell. This is the margin of 4 to 5 millimeters. So you can see here we're taking a lot of normal skin around. We make this kind of football-shaped incision, uh, and then we suture it up. So you can see um, we always have to warn patients. They're coming in with this little thing, and they end up with this great big scar, and that's because um, we have to take a lot of normal skin around. And you can imagine if we just cut a circle of skin around, when you try to pull Pull that close, you end up having some kind of uh, what we call standing cones, which are uh, little areas where the skin is really raised up. So instead, we take a football-shaped incision, which closes into a nice straight line. So the third type of procedure we do is called Mohs micrographic surgery. And I don't do this procedure. Dr. Yu, who's coming next week, is trained in Mohs surgery. It's, it's a fellowship, so it's extra training after you finish your dermatology training to be trained in Mohs. Um, Dr. Frederick Mohs was a, a dermatologist from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I always have to throw that in there because that's where I went to school. Um, so Dr. Mohs developed this pre procedure back in the 30s, and now it's really the treatment of choice for aggressive and large tumors or tumors that are in cosmetically sensitive areas or areas where you really need to get only the tissue where the tumor is involved and you don't want to be taking anything extra. Um, and the cure rate for Mohs is up to 99%. So probably most of you are asking, well, why don't we just do this for everybody? If the cure rate is better, um, why don't we do that? And the answer is that it's very expensive and time-consuming. Um, so what we do when we do Mohs, um, oh, and Quickly, these are the indication for Mohs. So as I was saying, aggressive types, large tumors, um, those are, and, and tumors that are in very cosmetically sensitive areas usually are the ones that go to Mohs. So what do we do when we do Mohs? So 
If this is the tumor, this is kind of a schematic here. If this is the tumor, we go and we mark around right on the edge of where we think the tumor is, and we cut just at the edge of where the tumor is. And then we remove this piece of tissue, and we put it on a piece of gauze, and we actually ink the side so we can tell which way is up, down, left, and right, so we know what the orientation of that is. And then we take that piece of tissue, and we do what's called a frozen section on it. So they freeze it, and they, uh, they plate it out on a microscope slide so we can look at it right there. And the way that they plate these out, we can actually see the entire margin, so all the way around the periphery, and we can see the deep margin. So we can tell if there's still tumor present at the edges. And if there is, then we go back just at the place where there's still tumor present. So if there's just tumor here, then, um, then we go back and we take a little more tissue here, and we bandage the patient up, send them to the waiting room, look at that piece of tissue under the microscope, and we keep doing that until we get the entire tumor out. So this way, we get the whole tumor, and we feel pretty confident we've gotten the whole tumor, but we haven't taken anything unnecessary. So after most surgery, often, again, because these are the larger, more aggressive tumors or they're in a place, um, I want you all to take your fingers and try to pinch your nose here. So you can imagine if you have a hole that we've made in your nose, you don't have a lot of extra skin. So if it's a big hole, we can't really sew it closed very easily. Um, so uh, often we're doing more complex repairs uh, on these areas. So dermatologists actually do flaps and skin grafts to try to, to kind of like Humpty Dumpty put the patient back together again. So this is a picture of uh, something called a flap. Um, this is just one type of flaps, and this is actually not a very big defect, but it's on the nose where you don't have a lot of room to move. Um, and this is called a bilobe flap, so we'd actually cut along what's drawn out here so it stays attached, and then this piece moves down to cover the hole, and then this gets closed together into a straight line. And you can see this has a really nice cosmetic outcome. I didn't want to show you any of the really big gross pictures. I tried to stick to rather tame ones. <laughs> so here's another picture of a defect on the on what's called the ala, the side of the nose, and this is a skin graft. Probably this was taken from skin in front of the ear. So we take a piece of skin, we cut all the fat off of it, and we sew it over the hole, and we hope that a new blood supply will connect uh, with that piece of skin, and it'll stay alive. And again, when they live, they have a pretty nice cosmetic outcome. Okay, so for the rare case when we can't cut out a basal cell or it metastasizes, um, again, up until recently, options not so great. Radiation, um, radiation and chemotherapy, kind of with the old chemotherapeutic agents that made people pretty sick. And um, now we actually, as of January of this year, there's, uh, there's a new agent uh, called Aravedg, which inhibits, this is not a joke, uh, the, one of the very important growth pathways with, for basal cells is something called the sonic hedgehog pathway. Um, and it inhibits uh, something called smoothened, which is part of that pathway and blocks the growth of a lot of basal cell cancer. So this is, a, is very exciting for both patients who have um, uh, metastatic or unrespectable basal cells, and then there's actually a, a genetic syndrome where you have a mutation in, um, in that gene called smoothened, and it, it helps a lot with those patients. So those patients get hundreds and hundreds of basal cells and are very difficult. Okay, so the next type of skin cancer we're going to talk about is, a, is squamous cell skin cancer. This is the second most common type of skin cancer. And these tend to, I always think of a fisherman as the, being the, the perfect person to get a squamous cell carcinoma because they're people who are out in the sun on the water or a lifeguard. So people who are in the sun their whole life, and these tend to come on skin that is chronically exposed to sun. 
other risk factors, the same, fair skin. Um, also, immunosuppression. This is very interesting. So patients who've had an organ transplant and are taking medications to prevent them to suppress their immune system so they don't reject that organ have an incredibly high rate of very aggressive squamous cell skin cancer. Um, so these patients uh, we see in clinic very frequently. Here are some pictures of squamous cell carcinomas. So um, unlike basal cell carcinomas, they don't have that pearly quality. They tend to be more kind of dull red or pink in color, and they have a big heaped-up crust on the top. Sometimes they'll ulcerate like this one. And then this is a picture of something called squamous cell carcinoma in situ or Bowen's disease, where it's really just confined to the top layer of the skin. And this is similar looking to a superficial basal cell carcinoma where they can look like eczema or psoriasis. This is a special type of squamous cell carcinoma called a keratoacanthoma, which kind of looks like a volcano, and they have—they all look like this. They have this very characteristic um, kind of, they're a big nodule with this very scaly core in the middle. And this is a type of squamous cell carcinoma. Um, interestingly, about 90% of these will regress on their own and just go away, but the problem is we can't tell which, uh, which are the 90% and which are the 10%, so we treat them all like, like other squamous cell carcinomas. So prognosis, just like basal cell carcinoma, is excellent. Um, they can cause local destruction of underlying tissues. These are more likely to, mis- to metastasize to lymph nodes or, uh, or distant structures than basal cells. Um, so the, the studies have quoted anywhere from half a percent to five percent. I would say they're probably closer down to the half a percent in my experience. Um, however, there are higher risk areas of the body, and that includes the lip, the ear, and the scalp. Um, also, squamous cell carcinomas that are coming up in the context of a chronic wound, we do see uh, this. Uh, it's a pretty rare thing, but patients who have chronic open wounds, because those cells are turning over so rapidly trying to repair the wound, something can go wrong, and you can end up with a mutation that leads to a squamous cell carcinoma. Um, the prognosis tends to be worse in those transplant patients or other immunosuppressed patients, including patients with HIV infection. Uh, they're more likely to have aggressive or metastatic disease. Treatment, pretty similar to basal cells, um, medical, surgical, uh, for ones that, are, that we can't treat with those things, radiation or chemo. Topical, uh, usually we only do the creams for uh, SCC in situ, so that, that one that's confined to the surface of the skin. Same surgeries, we can do that electrodesiccation and curatage. We can do a simple excision, and then for the more aggressive or larger uh, tumors or tumors on the face, we'll often send them for Mohs. And when they're unresectable, usually they go for radiation or chemotherapy. And they, again, these tend to be more aggressive. They, um, especially squames that arise on the lip, tend to behave more like head and neck cancers. So they tend to just be very difficult to get rid of. Okay, now we're going to switch gears again. We're going to talk about sunscreen. I love this cartoon. I don't know how many of you have seen sunscreen on the shelf that is SPF 100 plus, which you think must protect you from a nuclear bomb. Um, so uh, this cartoon, if you can't read it, says uh, we, have a, we have a UFO here and a guy sunbathing that says the death ray is useless against his sunscreen. Okay, so before we talk about sunscreen, I'm going to tell you a few basic facts about ultraviolet light. So ultraviolet light is invisible to the human eye, and it has the ability, because it's energy, it has the ability to damage DNA, and damage DNA is what leads to mutation and leads to cancers. 
We usually break up ultraviolet light into three parts, uh, UVA, UVB, and UVC. So UVA is the longest wavelength, and it actually has the ability to pass through window glass. I bet many of you didn't know that. When you're sitting in the car, you're actually getting ultraviolet light exposure. You can't get a sunburn through a window because it's only UVB that causes a sunburn, and the shorter wavelength means that it doesn't pass through window glass. So UVB burns you, but UVA uh, also has the ability to cause skin cancer, DNA damage, and it also is probably responsible for a lot of the aging of the skin. So the sunspots and the wrinkles, etc. Um, UVA is very important in, uh, in generating those, those issues. UVC is the highest energy and the shortest wavelength. Thankfully, that's blocked by the ozone layer. And all the above, as I said, damage DNA and collagen. So both UVA and UVB, again, UVC is blocked out, thankfully, but both UVA and UVB cause skin cancer and they cause aging of the skin. A little history about sunscreen. Many of you may recognize this. This is the iconic copper tone girl down here. Um, so back during World War II, again, just all my patients at the VA are examples of this. We had a lot of Caucasian people in the South Pacific getting a ton of sun, and they were having these horrible blistering sunscreen or sunburns, and they, the, uh, they realized that they, we needed to be able to do something that would let these people be out in the sun without burning. So they found this substance called red veterinary petrolatum, which was this thick, goopy red jelly, which blocked sun rays. And then someone had the bright idea to dilute it with cocoa butter and market it as copper tone. And that's how sunscreen was born. So when you get a bottle of sunscreen, it's always labeled as something called SPF. And this is something that I think confuses a lot of people. Again, you've got SPF 100. What on earth does that mean? Um, So SPF is actually a laboratory measure of protection against UVB only. So I want to stress that. When you see an SPF on a sunscreen bottle, it's only telling you about its ability to block UVB and stop you from burning. It has nothing to do with UVA. So when they test for SPF, what they do is they take a volunteer and they expose them to an artificial UVB source and they slather some sunscreen on a square and they measure how long it takes their their unsunscreened skin to burn and they measure how long it takes the sunscreen skin to burn and SPF is the the ratio of time. So so if it takes uh, five minutes for them to burn without sunscreen on and it uh, it takes them 30 minutes to, or I'm sorry, takes them 50 minutes to burn with the sunscreen on, that would be an SPF of 10. So, um, like I was saying, right now, uh, this is going to change real soon, but as of right now, there is no FDA requirement that you put anything on the label about UVA. And so, you can imagine, uh, actually, for a really long time, most of our sunscreens only blocked out UVB. And that let us stay in the sun, getting lots and lots and lots and lots of UVA exposure, which is... um, frightening and interesting, but potentially, um, as part of this controversy, does sunscreen actually increase your risk of skin cancer? So we're going to talk about some of this later. Thankfully, these days, most sunscreens do provide some UVA protection, and pretty soon they're going to require labeling about UVA protection. Um, Another important thing to realize about SPF is that most people don't apply sunscreen in that thickness that that they put it on for that lab measurement. So um, most people probably only put on a quarter to a half of that amount. To cover your full body and get the correct SPF, you're supposed to use a shot glass worth of sunscreen, which is about an ounce. So that would mean that your average bottle of sunscreen would probably only last you about five or six applications. And I don't know about you, but I use a lot of sunscreen, and usually um, I've 
still got my bottle left over from the from the year before when the next summer comes along. So most of us just don't use enough. Okay. Another definition that I wanted to talk about um, there, are, and this is incredibly confusing. Thankfully, again, the labeling is going to change, but there are actually two sort of broad categories of types of sunscreen. Um, there are the chemical blockers, which are also known as organic compounds. Now, organic doesn't mean that it's like from Whole Foods um, and, and natural. What it means is that it's a carbon-containing compound. And these chemical blockers, the way that they work is they actually absorb UV energy and they kind of break it down into less damaging energy. So they have the ability to absorb the light and they release it as less damaging light particles. Physical blockers, which are, um, so if you remember, uh, so for me when I was growing up, the lifeguard would always be sitting at the pool with this white paste on his nose. Um, So that was zinc oxide and uh, that's a physical blocker. So this is an inorganic compound, meaning it's not a carbon containing compound, it's a mineral, and it reflects the light. So in a couple of months, finally, the FDA is going to change the way that sunscreens have to be labeled. Um, so as I said, right now, that an SPF only tells you about sunburn protection. Um, but as of June t- 2012, you have to, uh, in order to get what's called a broad spectrum designation, which means that you're covering against all those types of ultraviolet light, in order to get that, you have to be able to demonstrate that you have UVA protection that is proportional to the UV. UVB protection listed on your SPF. So you want to always be looking for a sunscreen that says it is broad spectrum. So um, they also are getting rid of use claims. So um, you won't be able to uh, to claim that your sunscreen, if you, if you were out there uh, labeling a sunscreen, you can't claim that it prevents skin cancer or that it prevents aging of the skin unless you get that broad spectrum designation. They also are going to get rid of these labels, waterproof, sweatproof, or sunblock, uh, unless you can provide evidence. So right now, you can put whatever you want on your sunscreen label. You don't have to provide the FDA with any data to support it. Um, water resistance, so you, you will no longer be able to say waterproof, but on the front of your bottle, you have to say uh, whether it is water resistant to either 40 minutes or 80 minutes. And then drug facts, uh, this is really interesting. Actually, a lot of, um, especially cosmetic products with sunscreen, don't necessarily say what drugs are in them. So you'll have to actually list what drugs are in your sunscreen on the label. So there's also something called the proposed rule that's out there uh, still for public comment. Um, It's not finalized yet. Uh, The proposal is to limit labeling to SPF 50 plus. Um, The industries, so uh, the makers of sunscreens are fighting this. And actually also, um, I think it's the, I don't want to misquote on the internet here, but one of the major uh, dermatologic surgical societies is actually very anti this as well. They say that it's going to stifle industry development development of more innovative types of sunscreens. So we'll see if this ends up being adopted or not. So as I was saying, there's a lot of controversies in the news about sunscreen. It was amazing doing the research for this talk, uh, what I came across. There have been a lot of articles in the lay press talking about the dangers of sunscreen. Um, And uh, I'm going to try to talk you through what evidence is actually out there? Um, the answer is not much, but we'll, we'll talk about what, what exists and what it means. So what are the controversies? So first of all, 
um, we talk about, and this is legitimate, the fact that a lot of the old sunscreens let us stay in the sun for a really long time. Um, we were probably getting a lot of UVA radiation while that happened. And then, uh, because people don't put enough sunscreen on, a lot of the, the sunscreens, once, uh, once you're out in the light, the sunscreens start to break down. And when sunscreen products break down, they actually create free radicals, which can damage DNA. Um, so uh, when you don't put enough sunscreen on, you can actually end up having a more harmful effect than, than good. So uh, in addition... There have been some claims in the press that sunscreens might actually cause cancer uh, or that, uh, like many plasticizers that you hear about in the news, that they can potentially uh, disrupt human hormones. So that would be uh, important, for instance, for fetal development or for breast cancer. If you have something that's stimulating hormones, potentially that can cause ill health effects. And then the third thing... Uh, that's been a lot been in the news is that uh, with all the use of sunscreens and sunblocks these days, uh, because vitamin D is made in the skin when it's exposed to UVB light, that now people are becoming deficient in vitamin D, and there are a lot of claims about the effects that that might be having on our health. So we're going to try to go through all of these. So first of all, what is the evidence that sunscreen is good and that it prevents skin cancer? Um, and this is quite interesting. So there's pretty good evidence that that sunscreen, uh, at least the old sunscreens, again, uh, you have to understand that this is based on the old sunscreens, which, did, which really did not protect against UVA at all. Uh, but so there's pretty good evidence that it reduces the risk of actinic keratosis and squamous cell carcinoma by about 40%. Interestingly, there's not conclusive evidence that sunscreen use decreases your risk of basal cell or melanoma. It doesn't cause an increased incidence either, but it's flat, so there's, there is no effect. Uh, and, and again, there are some studies that show it does, some that it doesn't, but uh, when the meta-analyses are done, this is usually the conclusion that there's not a statistically significant difference in people who use sunscreen and don't in their rate of developing basal cell or melanoma. So, again, this is limited by the size of the studies. I think one thing that's very important for the lay public to understand is how expensive and time-consuming it is to do a good study that actually gives real uh, evidence. So um, when, when a, a problem such as, uh, such as this is identified, it can take years and millions and millions of dollars. Um, I have a study right now where, um, where I'm interviewing 150 people, and it's causing, uh, costing tens of thousands of dollars just to interview 150 people. So you can imagine to interview thousands of people and do it on a regular basis, it's so expensive to actually get good data. So um, while a lot of uh, the public may be frustrated that there's not great information out there, it's because it's very expensive and takes a long time uh, to accumulate this data. In addition, you know, if you get your sunburns when you're 10, you may not get your melanoma until you're 40. So again, it takes years and years and years to really know the effect. And by that time, everything has changed and sunscreens are different, etc. So it's really, really tough to study these things. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about which ingredients in sunscreen have come under fire in the lay press. Um, the first is PABA. I'm sure you've all seen your sunscreens labeled PABA-free. Second is something called retinyl palmitate. The third is called oxybenzone, which is also known as benzophenone 3. And the fourth is uh, a micronized form of that white 
paste, that zinc oxide. Um, nowadays, we actually, uh, most sunscreens that have zinc or titanium in them, they break it up into these tiny little particles, which have a little bit better protection against the energy from the light, and they also allow them to go on clear so that it doesn't give you that white pasty look. So first, let's talk about PABA. So PABA it was the active sunscreen ingredient in a lot of sunscreens uh, in the old days. Nowadays, because, uh, because there was some evidence that it could potentially cause DNA damage and cancer, nowadays nobody uses PABA, but everybody still puts PABA-free on their label. It's kind of irrelevant. Um, however, there are some derivatives of PABA uh, that we don't really know the effects of. Um, one in particular is called Padamate O, which is still found in some, in some sunscreens. So, again, there's not evidence that it does cause cancer. There's not evidence that it doesn't. We don't know yet. The second is something called retinyl palmitate. This is, uh, added, this is not an active sunscreen ingredient. It's actually added to some sunscreens for an anti-aging or antioxidant effect. This is actually a form of vitamin A, and it's added to a lot of things. For instance, they put it in low-fat milk uh, to replace the vitamin A because um, vitamin A is fat-soluble. It dissolves in the fat, so when they take the fat out, milk doesn't have enough vitamin A, so they put this artificial form of vitamin A in it. And it's also in some sunscreens. So um, this is a form of retinol. Um, we use a lot of this in dermatology for a lot. We use it for acne. We use it for its anti-aging effects. We use it all the time. So um, there was some controversy because in mouse models, uh, so this is a type of hairless mouse. So it's a mouse that's bred to have no hair, and they put a whole bunch of this retinal palmitate on it, and they put it under radiation. And those mice that had the retinal palmitate had a very slightly increased risk of skin cancer. I think, personally, um, these are products that we use all the time in dermatology. Patients don't have increased risk of skin cancer. I think this one is probably safe. And we, uh, my personal opinion is that this is not one that we need to worry about. Oxybenzone is a very, very, very common ingredient. It's in a lot of these broad-spectrum suns uh, sunscreens. Um, this is, again, an organic uh, chemical compound that, uh, and again, organic means it contains carbon. It's going to be one of those that kind of breaks up the energy from the light into, into less energetic particles. So um, oxybenzone, there is some lab data, and this is, again, in a lab, not in human beings, but there's some lab data showing that oxybenzone in the presence of sunlight can be energized to form something that are called uh, free radicals or reactive oxygen species, which can damage DNA. Um, there also is some lab data that shows that oxybenzone, which is kind of in that plasticizer um, type of chemical compound, um, that, that it may have some weak, very, very weak uh, estrogenic or anti-androgenic effects. So it may possibly simulate female hormones. Again, this is in a lab. This is not in humans. All the human studies have shown no problem with this, with the exception that the CDC in 2008 um, did a study. So we do know that oxybenzone gets absorbed from the skin into the body. Um, it's excreted in urine, so they can measure it in urine. So the CDC did a study of about 2,500, uh, or I'm sorry, with this one, it was about 400 pregnant women, and they found that if the, if the child was a girl, she had a, uh, there was a slight proportional risk of having low birth weight with the amount of oxybenzone that was in that woman's urine. That's really the only, uh, the only and it, again, it's relatively weak evidence that there is a problem. But I think this is something that needs more study. 
And then also with oxybenzone, similar to PABA, some people can have allergic reactions to it, but that's really an idiosyncratic thing. So I think with oxybenzone, um, again, the FDA has really concluded that this is safe. Um, you know, most, uh, so the, the American Academy of Dermatology thinks this is safe. Everybody thinks this is safe. Really, um, there's no evidence that this, uh, there's no good, strong evidence that this causes a problem. But again, as I was saying, it takes a long time and a lot of money to do the studies to prove that it's for sure safe. So I think the jury's out. For now, we recommend it. Um, we know for sure that uh, that getting us getting sun causes skin cancer. Um, so I'd say when you're weighing the risks and the benefits, I'd rather have the known than the unknown, but um, more information is needed. Now, nanoparticles. So remember I was saying that the, those um, inorganic sunscreens, they break them up into these tiny little, little particles so that you can't see it on the skin. So um, when they do that, there's some question as to whether those particles, because they're so small, whether they can cross cell membranes and potentially have biologic effects. Um, there's also concern about whether this can potentially you know, wash off the skin and end up in the environment and end up accumulating uh, in, um, in, uh, in the environment. So um, there is, again, not a lot of research out there, and most of it is lab data, and most of it's pretty mixed or inconclusive. Um, a lot of people are upset because I think the availability of these products has really outpaced what is known about what they can do. Um, again, we still recommend them. There's no evidence that they're unsafe, but more studies are needed. So now that I've just really uh, not done my job and convinced you all not to use sunscreen, uh, what do I tell my patients? So I think really um, we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. Um, and we really have to use a multi-pronged approach to protecting ourselves from the sun. So always less product is better than more product. And we know for sure that hats don't cause cancer and they don't cause uh, you know environmental effects, et cetera. So put on a hat, cover up your body, wear your sunglasses, try to cover up everything you can. And then on the parts that uh, that are exposed, use sunscreen on those parts, and that's usually what I tell my patients. Um, and again, you know, when you're weighing the risks or the benefits, what's worse, the known versus the unknown? We know that the light, that sunlight, is causing skin cancer. So if you're going to be outside, I'd still rather have you um, using sunscreen uh, than not using it until we know a little bit more. Okay, so the last thing are these controversies in, in vitamin D. So um, especially with kids these days now, um, you know, I just... Uh was lucky enough to take a vacation with my son uh, to Hawaii, and we were in the pool, and I was so proud to see that all the kids had their hats on, and they had their rash guards on, and, you know, we really do a much better job these days of, uh, a lot of people do a much better job of protecting their kids from the sun. However, um, you do need ultraviolet B light in order to produce uh, vitamin D in your skin. So the question is, are we, by using all this sun protection, preventing ourselves from making enough vitamin D? And what are the effects of that? So um, there have been claims in, again, uh, in, some in research, some in the lay media, that, uh, that low vitamin D uh, leads to all kinds of ill health effects. In addition, so um, and we'll talk a little bit about what we know vitamin D does, uh, and that is that it's essential for bone health. But in addition to bone health, there have been claims that it has, that having low vitamin D can cause cancer, that it can cause autoimmune disease like multiple sclerosis, that it can cause heart disease, diabetes, all kinds of things. So what's the truth? 
So we know for sure that there are two sources of vitamin D. Your skin can make it when it's exposed to UVB, or you can get it from your diet, either uh, through foods or supplements. So vitamin D uh, is essential for bone health. You absolutely need it to have healthy bones. And when you don't have enough vitamin D, uh, it can lead to having uh, uh, poor bone health in adults, so osteomalacia or osteopenia, meaning your bones aren't strong enough, you're prone to fractures, etc. Um, and then rickets in children, which is, uh, which is a disease um, of, of young kids where they end up having bow legs, etc. So... Um, it's also uh, it has known function in cell division and death, in function of the uh, of nerves and muscles, and in inflammation. So um, I'm not going to belabor you with going through all the different studies that are out there. Um, I think suffice it to say that in 2010, um, the Institute of Medicine, which is a not-for-profit um, expert uh, uh, group that is uh, run by the National Science Foundation, so um, it's non-governmental. They basically, they elect a group of physicians to address questions that are important in the public every year. And this group reviewed all the evidence that's out there on vitamin D, and this is what they said. Information about the benefits, the health benefits beyond bone health, benefits often reported in the media were from studies that provided mixed and inconclusive results and could not be considered reliable. And uh, I totally agree with that statement. Most of the other claims about what vitamin D can do, again, I'm not saying that they're not the truth. It's just that there's no proof of it yet. So we don't have any proof that having low vitamin D causes cancer or multiple sclerosis or any of these other horrible things. And we also know that whether you get your vitamin D from your diet or from your skin, it doesn't matter. They're the same. So um, the bottom line is protect your skin from the sun and take supplements of vitamin D. How much should you take? For kids under the age of one, uh, infants, they should take, have 400 units. Um, for anyone between the ages of one and 70, they, you need 600 units and 800 units for, uh, for adults over the age of 70. Just in case you're interested in reading uh, a little bit more about all that stuff about sunscreen, this is a good uh, article, and I can send it to you if you're interested. And uh, there's my email if anybody wants me to send those articles. Okay, thanks, everybody. I'll take some questions. The optic nerve um, is, if I remember this right, um, uh, can stimulate um, uh, something called melanocorticotropic hormone, which is, I believe, secreted by either the pituitary or the hypothalamus. I can't remember. It's been a long time. Anyway, so you have uh, you do have receptors in your brain that are supposed to uh, supposed to help increase the production of melanin, and that's actually helps me make a point that I forgot to make earlier, which is that um, really the by far the most potent the most potent thing that tells your skin to make more melanin is actually DNA damage. It's fragments of DNA, and that's what induces your melanocytes to make more melanin, much more than the than what's released from your brain. Um, so every time that you get a tan, you actually have DNA damage. So there's no such thing as a safe tan. Um, as far as the question of whether wearing sunglasses is going to reduce your ability to tan, I'm not aware of any good scientific studies that have shown that one way or another. I think it's it's theoretical at best. So um, wear sunglasses because there is such a thing as ocular melanoma, and I'd rather (laughs) have that definitely than a little uh, melanin that's produced from that.
That's a good question. So for the rest of the audience, the question is whether these, quote-unquote, um, clothings that have sunscreen, have SPFs attached to them and have sunscreens washed into them. My understanding is that some of these, when they have an SPF attached, um, again, they've had to do lab data that shows that it protects that X amount. Um, you can get a little bit of sun through, for instance, cotton clothing, et cetera. Um, whether the amount that you get through a loose T-shirt uh, is enough to really cause skin cancer. Again, I don't think science knows the answer to that. So it's nice to have clothing that we know has kind of been tested as sun protective. Um, and we do recommend those products, especially to our patients who have a history of skin cancer. This gentleman is asking if there's a relationship between some, a word that he's heard of, uh, which is used a lot in dermatology, which is lichen, and all these other cancers that we're discussing. Um, so lichen, which we know is a moss in the environment, um, this is actually something uh, that is in a lot of dermatologic terms, and it's actually used to refer to um, a biopsy where you see that you have um, an inflammatory infiltrate that is hugging the junction of the dermis and the epidermis the way that moss kind of hugs a rock. Um, so it's, it is a histopathologic pattern. Um, in terms of its relationship to skin cancers, um, you know, it's there's not much of a relationship. So there are um, some skin lesions that can be uh, lichenoid. So there's something called a benign lichenoid keratosis that can be a mimicker of basal cell carcinoma. And when we biopsy it, it's actually a solar lenigo that has one of those lichenoid infiltrates. So it has um, white blood cells that are kind of hugging that junction of the dermis and the epidermis. For everyone else, the question is, is there evidence that congenital moles, so those are the moles that I was saying arise, either they come either at birth or within the first few years of life, do those have the potential to become cancerous? The answer is yes. Um, the size of the congenital mole actually has a very big bearing on that risk. So there's such a thing as a giant congenital nevus, and those patients usually have you know 20% of their body surface area or more covered by this mole, and those have an extremely high risk of developing melanoma. Um, for a congenital mole, and I have to think back, I believe that a congenital mole that is less than five centimeters in size, it has no increased risk of melanoma. So it depends on the size. Um, and I'm sorry, it's not that it has, it, so it's not that you can't get melanoma in one that's less than five centimeters, but it's not any riskier than any other mole on your body. Does that make sense? Um, again, with the ABCDE criteria, we say greater than six millimeters, so the size of a pencil eraser. Again, um, I think that has the, a lot of people have a lot of moles that are perfectly benign that are bigger than that, but um, but it can be useful um, again, especially for patients who don't have a lot of moles. So if you really you only have a couple of moles and they're all pretty small, and then suddenly again it's that ugly duckling, it's a mole that's a lot bigger than your other moles. That's when I would be concerned if you have a large mole. If you have lots of large moles, as long as that large mole looks like your other moles, not so worrisome. So the question was, uh, photofacials and laser, how does that have any impact on the growth of skin cancer? Um, that'll be a good question for Dr. Yu. Next week when you see her, again, she, she actually practices this. Um, I'm not aware, again, that there's any 
evidence. I think it probably depends on the type of laser. So, um, for instance, so there are lots of different types of lasers. The, the types that we're kind of using for photofacials, to my knowledge, they don't have any bearing on, uh, I don't think they increase the risk of skin cancer or decrease it. Um, you can, again, um, we don't do this very often, but in patients who have lots of skin cancers or precancers, you can use a type of laser that actually destroys the epidermis that completely peels it all off. And in that case, um, you would theoretically destroy all the precancerous cells and, and decrease the risk of skin cancer in that way. So the answer is it depends on the type of laser, I guess. All right, well, thanks so much for being such a great audience, everybody. And um, feel free to ask me if you have other questions afterwards or email me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.